All right, all right. Good morning, New Life Church. Good to see all of you today. My name is Glenn Packiam. Great to be with you at New Life North. I want to share some exciting news. You know, New Life Downtown is our um, oldest off-site congregation or other campus than this campus. And during the pandemic, for about 19, almost 20 months, we were bouncing around, meeting all over the city. We met down the hall in the theater for a lot of months. We met here on Sunday nights for a lot of months. We met at the Antlers Hotel downtown for a lot of months. We met at the World Prayer Center for a couple months. And I'm pleased to say that three weeks ago or so, October 31st, we returned to Palmer High School for the first time since the pandemic began. It was amazing. <laughs> it was an epic time. It's been great. I mean, imagine the oldest high school in our city filled with people worshiping God. The best thing about it was hearing the principal and school counselors and other people connected with the school say, we've missed your presence in this building. I, and, and they've said, listen, it's been dark, it's been difficult, and they, they don't have the language for it. They're not, they don't know spiritual warfare or stuff in the heavenlies, whatever. All they could say was, we're so glad you're back. We've missed your presence in the school. So continue to pray with us that the Lord uses it to be a place of, of blessing, that there's stuff that kind of lingers over. I mean, we believe in that, right? The people of God don't come into a place and leave it unchanged, right? Something happens, so we believe in that. I remember when we first started meeting in Palmer High School back in 2012, um, my wife and I, we had just had our fourth child. Little Jane was born in June of 2012. And I was preaching, I, you know, I was standing on the floor and the seats were up there. And all of a sudden, Sophia, our oldest, who's 16, sometimes she's on the, uh, the platform up here. But back then, 2012, this is nine years ago. I mean, she was young, seven, you know, uh, seven years old or so, but firstborn. So I'm preaching one day and I'm, I'm, you know, trying to bring the word of God and all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, Sophia comes sneaking down the aisle and I can see her. And she sits right in front of me and she goes, Dad. And I'm like, you know, I got a decision to make here, you know, like, do I ignore my firstborn child and be faithful to the word of God, or do I see what's going on? So I, I decide to press on for a few moments, so I'm, you know, preaching a little stronger, but now it starts to get distracting because now she stands up, and she's in the front, and she goes, Dad! <laughs> and now other people can hear, so I'm sort of like, There's, it's, it's all lost now, whatever sort of holy moment we were going for. So I go, yes, honey, what is it? And she goes, Jonas can't find his pacifier. <laughs> and Jonas, our son, I mean, at the time, this is, you know, nine years ago, he's probably, he was probably two or three or whatever, and Holly's probably nursing our newborn, you know, so Sophia has taken it upon herself to rescue her little brother. And of course, this is an emergency, Dad. He cannot find his pacifier. So, I, I mean, I can't do anything, so I'm like, well, Keep looking is what I said, you know. And she, she ran off totally exasperated that I couldn't help her uh, do that. This morning we're in our series on Ruth, and I tell you that story because we could all probably name moments where you feel like you're desperate, where you feel like, I don't know who to turn to, I need help. And we're in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to talk about a desperate faith. What does it mean to come to God with a desperate faith? Faith. So as you're turning your Bibles or scrolling in your phones to Ruth chapter 3, would you bow your heads with me and we'll open in a word of prayer. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your uh, spirit that is among us in this place. And Lord, we're asking this morning that as we open the scriptures, you would open our hearts and our minds. Help us to see Jesus. 
to hear Jesus. Help our minds to comprehend the way that you're speaking to us and let our hearts be changed and be able to trust in you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. The book of Ruth is an interesting book for a number of reasons. One, it follows the book of Judges. And if you've ever gone through, like, you know, tried to read the Bible in one year, it's a difficult thing to do. But you'll maybe catch the way these two books are, are sequenced together. The book of Judges ends terribly, tragically, with bad news specifically for women. You see the end of the book of Judges. It's a terrible story about the degradation of a woman. It's a story of people doing right in their own eyes. And then Ruth opens and says, now in the time of the Judges, it's the narrator's way of saying to us, there's something else going on in this season. And while Judges was about people doing right in their own eyes, Ruth is a story of people being faithful to God in difficult times. People doing right in difficult times. And in chapter 1, we saw that Elimelech and his family, they leave Bethlehem. Literally, they leave the house of bread during a famine. That's what Bethlehem means. And they run to Moab. They leave the house of bread because times were tough. And they go somewhere else and things get worse. As it turns out, trouble is everywhere. And then Naomi decides, I'm, I'm going to come home. And as she returns to Judah, she hears God might be being kind to his people. I want to go where God's kindness is. And you heard the story in Ruth 1 of Ruth binding herself to Naomi, saying, I'm not, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to bind myself to you. But now we get to, and, and last week in Ruth 2, you, you find this kindness of Boaz and the edges of the fields and something begins to turn in their story, but something more needs to happen and it needs to happen quick. And the question I wanna invite us to hold before the Lord this morning is, what do we do when we're at the end of our rope? What do we do when we're at the end of our rope? So we've experienced some kindness and things are turning, but in a very real way, it feels like we're at the end. I posted this on Facebook yesterday and someone goes, tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> That's nice, but Ruth has something more than that to say to us. Ruth chapter three, verse one. One day Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where, you where you will be well provided for. This is an amazing thing that Naomi's saying. Naomi is now taking action. She's saying, look, I've got to find a home for you. Now Boaz, with whose women you have, been, you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Now there's a couple of things we need to see about this passage. It's tempting to kind of hear those instructions with modern ears and to say, oh, he's telling her to sort of, you know, get all, all, all you know, look, look nice and get all cleaned up and maybe then Boaz will notice you. This is not a Hallmark movie. That's not what's going on here. In fact, in a very real way, what, he, what Naomi is saying to Ruth is stop the time of mourning. Those same instructions, those same actions are exactly what later on in the scriptures David will do after he's done mourning and lamenting. He'll get up, anoint himself with oil, and get dressed. And what Naomi is saying through, she's not saying put on perfume, she's saying anoint yourself with oil. It's time now to end that moment of feeling stuck. 
It's time to end this moment where you're feeling sorry for yourself. It's time to take action. She's saying the time for mourning is over. It's time to get to work. It's time to take action. And the first thing I want you to see from this story is that we need, what do we need when we're at the end of our rope? Number one, we need committed friends. What's remarkable about the book of Ruth is there are no sensational miracles that happen in this story. This is not a book that has a Red Sea parting or manna from heaven or fire falling down from the skies. This is not a story of spectacular moments. This is a story of ordinary people with extraordinary faithfulness somehow participating in God's salvation. I'm going to say that again. It's ordinary people with extraordinary faithfulness somehow participating in God's faithfulness. That's good news for us. Sometimes we, we, you know, we read parts of scripture and we're like, well, that's cool, but that's just not my life. Like I'm just raising kids or I'm just going to work or I'm just doing stuff. And I don't, I mean, I don't know about all this crazy talk. I don't, I don't see any of that. The book of Ruth is an encouraging book because it says, if you just live in a faithful way, faithful to your friends, faithful to your people, don't look now, but you might find yourself in the middle of the kingdom of God arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Ruth becomes central to the story of salvation. She's not a bit player. You're going to find this out next week. She's not a sideshow. She is center to the story of God's salvation arriving. And how does it happen? Because there's a committed friendship that's going on. You saw early in chapter one that Naomi experiences Ruth's friendship. In many ways, Naomi is like the female Job. You know, Job, the story in the Bible, the dude who has everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong, except Job has three lousy friends. Like, they, the best thing they do is when they sat with Job quietly. As soon as he started opening their mouth, things got worse. Right? You're like, yeah, I, got, I know people, I got friends like that. <laughs> Naomi is like the female Job, except instead of three lousy friends, she has one super committed daughter-in-law. And Ruth's commitment starts to turn Naomi's bitterness, and now you see Something has awoke, something has awakened in Naomi. Something has been woken up where she was like, just call me bitter. She's sort of in this Eeyore mode in chapter one, right? Good morning, is it good? <laughs> Don't call me Naomi. But now Ruth's commitment to her, something is coming alive in Naomi. And Na we, we start out chapter three and Naomi's like, okay, time to go to work. I've got to find a home for you. What I love about this, in chapter one, Naomi's sort of passive. She's like, Ruth, I just pray that God will get a husband for you and God will take care of you and I just pray that you'll experience care. Now in Ruth chapter three, Naomi's like, okay, Ruth, I've got to find a home for you. That's different. How many of you know you can pray as an excuse for passiveness? Or you can pray as the fuel for your action. Naomi, at first, you get the sense that her prayer is sort of like passiveness, like, I don't know, well, I pray, hope it works. By chapter three, Naomi's discovered a different kind of prayer. Some people call this embodied intercession, where you're praying with your body and your feet in the sense that you're gonna take action here. Oh, I just pray that you're, you're okay and that you, no, I'm gonna bring you food. I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna make sure that you're okay. Listen, I've seen you do this, New Life. I've seen you do this all through the last year, this year. People are struggling, people are not well. I've had close friends that have been in the hospital. 
And I've watched as the church has not just prayed and not let their prayer be an excuse for being passive, but their prayer has fueled their action. I've watched you as you've said, okay, you know what? what let's, let's do this. Let's fill their pantries with food. Let's go visit them. Let's hold signs outside the hospital. Let's go do this. Let's be around for them. Let's support them. When you're at the end of your rope, you need committed friends who'll show up for you, whose prayers actually become flesh. It makes me think of the story in the Gospels, Mark chapter 2, of the man who was paralyzed. Here it is, Mark chapter 2. A few days later, it says, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now watch this. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging, by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I mean, get this. It's enough to say, we're going to carry our paralyzed friends to Jesus. It's another thing when you get there and you're like, man, there's no room. You, you, I mean, you could say, we've sort of done our duty as a friend. Hey, we tried. We got you here. But sorry, man. Maybe, you know, we'll just keep praying. But these are friends who refuse to give up. They dig a hole through the dude's roof. And they lower him down and dirt is falling on people's heads. And Jesus is like, okay, okay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And of course he goes on and heals him. And he says, take up your map and walk. That's the kind of friends I want in those moments. The friends will say, come on, we're going we're gonna to storm heaven with you. We're going to pray for you. Last year when I was going through the struggle with my vocal cord and wasn't sure if I was going to need surgery or not, I knew I needed people to rally around me. So I called my parents one day. I'm like, okay, guys, I want you to like pull out all the stops, like bring all the spiritual warfare intercessory prayer. And of course, my mom was like, it's about time. <laughs> yeah. So they came over to my house. I mean, they're like just rocking and praying in tongues and, we're, and we're, we're binding and all of this stuff. And some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. It's okay. Well, ask your neighbor after the service. And it, I ended up having to have surgery and God worked my healing through medicine. And I'm so grateful for all of you who serve in the medical profession. But I'll tell you what carried me through that season was knowing that there were people surrounding me in prayer. People carrying me like those friends carry that man to Jesus. If we've got to dig through a roof, we're going to dig through a roof. Back to the story. Ruth 3, verse 7. Now when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, and Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment, or literally in Hebrew, cover me with your wing. Since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. Now there's no way around it. Even if this isn't scandalous, it is provocative. And it's also why we need to be clear that the book of Ruth, though it is sometimes used this way, it is not dating advice. Like, don't, don't, like, try to take this. Oh, well, yeah. 
In chapter two in the book of Ruth, Boaz prays over Ruth and he says, look, your faithfulness to your, your, your mother-in-law, he's like, may the Lord spread his wings over you. He says this in Ruth chapter two. And now Ruth comes with boldness to Boaz and she's basically saying, you said, may the Lord spread his wings and cover me. I'm saying, it's your wings. You cover me. You protect me. I mean, isn't that something where you, you want to be from a distance and be like, hey, man, I just pray the Lord. And they say back to you, you're the answer to my prayer. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, I wasn't thinking that that would be the case. But what Ruth demonstrates here is a desperate faith. And that's the second thing we need. What do we need when we're at the end of our rope? Yeah, we need committed friends. But you know what we also need is we need a desperate faith. A desperate faith. Ruth was willing to look foolish, willing to look undignified, willing to look scandalous. I don't know if you know this, but the Moabites, and Ruth was a Moabite woman, the Moabites have a particular history. And if you read the Old Testament, there's these backstories to the people, and even the story of how the Moabites became a people is a story shrouded by seduction, tainted by a scandalous act. And you read then in the but the book of Numbers, Moabite women had gained a reputation of being the ones who would seduce Israelite men and lead them to worship foreign gods. I'm pretty sure Ruth knew those, that reputation in the back of her mind, and she probably thought, if I do what Naomi's telling me to do, am I just fulfilling the stereotype here? And some of you have heard this, oh, am I just, you know, just going to follow? Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a crazy Christian. I don't want to be a desperate person. I don't want to be a, and you fill in the stereotypes that our culture has. Ruth is like, I don't care. I don't care about the story. I don't care about the labels. I don't care about how some other reporter might label me right now. I have a desperate faith. I have a desperate faith. This summer we marked 20 years of doing the Desperation Student Conference. It was an amazing time. Also amazing in part because we had a mini desperation band reunion here. So like me, John Egan, Jared Anderson in a bow tie, interesting. And, uh, and we got up here and sang some of the songs. Now John has long hair again. I used to have long hair. I have just less hair. Just, let's just say that, less hair now. But I remember when we first started you know, the Desperation Student Conference and then the band that was leading worship for it was just called simply enough the Desperation Band. And, we never thought about how that might sound to other people, you know. So this is very, one of the very first things we ever played at was a very stuffy kind of industry event. And we were like fish out of water. We're a church, like youth worship band, you know, and we're playing in front of industry execs. And, and, and we get up there and we finish playing and we're like, I don't know. And the, the MC goes, now there's a couple of guys who are desperate to sound good. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I, don't, I think he meant it as a compliment, but it really didn't come out that way. And then over the years, we had people kind of criticize it and say, desperation, like why, why do we, like, like that's not how Christians live. Christians are victorious. Christians are triumphant. Christians are, you know, like we're not desperate, we're strong. And we're like, maybe you are. <laughs> and I realized that for so many of us, maybe in our American version of Christianity, we like the version of Christianity that says, I'm on top of the world. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible is actually full of stories of people who are at the end of their rope, not at the top of the world. 
And the ones who begin to seek God are the ones who recognize that actually my life depends on this. The story of the Bible is the story of people repeatedly coming to the end of their rope, desperately crying out for God. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is not the story of a superpower, but a story of a people who are constantly being kicked around and overrun. If you're in the room and you're like, man, I do feel like an outsider. I do feel like we're on the edge. I do feel like I'm losing power or losing control or losing a grip on what I used to have. I, I, I'm not what I used to be. I want to tell you, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. Because church isn't for the strong and the put together and the beautiful and the successful. Church is for us wherever we are in life, but we always want to live on the edge of our faith. Live on the edge of our faith. Let's never be a church that, lives, that leans back comfortably and like, whoo, I used to be desperate, but whoo, I'm good now. I, no matter what age, or season of life, or whether you're successful externally or not, always live on the edge of your faith. Ruth shows a desperate faith. It reminds me of the story in the Gospels. The story of the Gospels in the book of Mark, it says they, were, they came to Jericho and Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city and a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, people heard him and they rebuked him, said, be quiet. There's a service flow. And um, that's not the time of the service to be crying out loud right now. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. <laughs> Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called to the blind man, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. It's amazing to me how people flip on a dime. And like one minute they're rebuking him, next minute they're like, hey man, cheer up. Like, oh, I see how it is. Now that Jesus is on my side. <laughs> Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him and the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see that's the, that's the root of the issue. I, don't, I could ask you for bread. I could ask you for money. I could ask you for temporary solutions, but I want you to go to the root of this thing. I want to see. And Jesus said, go. Your faith has healed you, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What I love about the story of Ruth and the story of Bartimaeus is that there are times in life when you feel stuck, but you are not powerless. There are times in life when you feel stuck, but you are not powerless. Some time ago, I was talking to a young person who's, or, or, who, who was struggling with a particular issue, and he said, I just don't know what to do, and if nothing works out, I'm gonna end up doing this instead. And I said, well, hang on. There's a lot of steps you could take before you get to that one. Another person was single and feeling, had been feeling lonely through the pandemic, and he's like, I, I just don't know. I mean, I can't connect, I can't make friends, and, and maybe I should just move to another city. And I said, well, what about a small group? Have you considered leading a small group? Have you considered? And he's like, no, nah, that just seems like too much work. I said, so you're willing to move to another city, but you're not willing to try starting a small group. We get in these places in life where we start to get irrational and we feel so stuck that we think we're powerless. And the only options we can think of are like the, the blow it all up option. 
Some of you are in a marriage and you're like, we're not getting anywhere in the marriage. Have you thought about reaching out for counseling? I don't know, counseling, see, I just, oh, I just there's too much work to repair, all this stuff. I just, I think we're just gonna separate. And listen, I understand situations that are very difficult and where there's abuse and, and infidelity and there's, there are moments, there are reasons marriages dissolve. I understand all of that. But I just wanna say to you that sometimes there are places where you think you're stuck but you're not actually powerless. There's one more step, there's one more step, there's one more step. And what we see in Ruth is she's like, she could have said, I don't know, maybe I'll just rely on barley grain from, from the edges of the fields all of my life. And Naomi's like, no, we're gonna get a home for you. And Bartimaeus could have said, well, maybe my whole life is just meant to be sitting here getting daily bread. I mean, that's kind of spiritual, right? And he says, no, Jesus is here. I don't just want daily bread, I want to see. There's another step you can take, new life. There's another step you can take. And desperate faith will lead you to this moment where you can say, hang on, hang on, hang on. There's one more step. As the story goes on, Ruth 3, verse 10, Boaz replies, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you have showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Speaks highly of Ruth. She took a risk to ruin her reputation. And he says, no, 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 I know who you are. And he says this phrase for this kindness. In Hebrew, it's this word chesed. I learned the word chesed as a young boy because my parents, fresh from Bible school, named our dog chesed. I mean, that's like, how do you call a dog? Like, come here, chesed. You know, they're cuffing up a hairball every time you summon your puppy, you know. <laughs> but chesed means the steadfast love of God. We see chesed introduced in Ruth chapter 1. When Ruth clings to Naomi, Hesed is kind of a stubborn love, a love that refuses to let go. And Boaz says, I know about you. You're a woman of stubborn love, of loyal love. You're not gonna give up. And then he decides to show grace to her. We need committed friends. We need a desperate faith. But finally, we need, above all, a gracious redeemer. We need a gracious redeemer. See, Boaz knew that if he was signing up to redeem this land and redeem Ruth, it was a risk. In fact, there were laws that Moses had given because of the way the Moabites had tricked Israelites and because of their tenuous relationship. Moses had made a law that if you were to welcome a Moabite into your nation, the law was that they couldn't be an Israelite citizen until 10 generations it's a crazy thing. And it was, it was an Old Testament way of saying, we've got to be careful. These people could be a corrupting influence. But Boaz undoes that. He says, no, 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 no. That's not actually the heart of God. And he's willing to take on Ruth, knowing that they might have a child that would feel like an outsider. Instead, you know what's coming. They end up getting in the lineage of King David. They end up getting in the lineage of King Jesus. Boaz takes this risk knowing 
that it could implicate him. He didn't do it because he saw, oh, I could get more land, I could add more property. I could, he, Boaz isn't thinking in a calculated way. In fact, if he were, he, he wouldn't have done this. And then at the end of chapter three, Naomi says about Boaz, she says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I love that. It's a picture into the gracious redeemer. He's not gonna rest until he takes care of this. What is God like when we come to him at the edge of our faith? What is God like when we come to him with a mixture of doubt and despair? What is God like? He's the God who will not rest until he settles the matter. He's a God who goes to work on our behalf. Earlier, we saw Ruth's stubborn and steadfast love as a picture of Jesus. But now we see in Boaz the gracious love of Jesus. The love of Jesus that looks at us in our desperate condition and doesn't say, I told you so. It doesn't say, well, ah, you know, your choices, blah, blah, blah. But looks at us in our desperate condition and says, I'm not gonna rest until I rescue and redeem you. I'm not gonna rest until I finish it. I think about Jesus struggling to carry the cross all the way up the hill to Calvary and suffers and dies. And at any moment, we could have said, Jesus, rest, take a break, call down angels, quit on this job. And he saw me and he saw you. And he said, I will not rest until I say and breathe at the last, it is finished. I will not rest until I rescue and redeem. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5 has the Beatitudes as the worship team comes. And the message paraphrase says it in a particularly powerful way. You know, we're used to hearing a blessed or the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of God. But I like the message paraphrase because it says it this way. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Would we say that? I mean, would I say that? My comfortable life, like would I really say that I'm blessed when I'm at the end of my rope? Like I'd rather be blessed on top of the world. <laughs> but Jesus said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Why? Because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher and author, said it this way, he said, God's address is at the end of your rope. <laughs> Where can I find God? At the end of your rope. I'm searching for God at the end of your rope, but I don't wanna be at the end of my rope. He's at the end of your rope. God's address is at the end of your rope. And so New Life, I wanna, I wanna invite you into something this morning that maybe will feel like, well, I hope it does. I hope it feels like a step out of your comfort zone. <laughs> I think it's easy for us, here we are the Sunday before Thanksgiving, where it's easy to think about the next few weeks in sentimental ways, sappy ways, and it's great. I, I, I'm a sucker for all that stuff, I love it too. Sometimes we can ignore the real longing in our heart. Or sometimes we can get in this place where Jesus is like a Christmas ornament. Like he's there, he's part of our life. Like, ah, oh, Jesus, yay. I love it, I love him. 
but he's not the one that we come and kneel down at before. All through the Bible, David, when the presence of God returns to Jerusalem, he's like, oh my gosh, I'll become even more undignified than this. The woman with the alabaster jar, she finds Jesus and she's like, oh my goodness, here he is. And she falls down and breaks this jar and pours the perfume and anoints his feet. Talk about scandalous. And before any of them did that, Ruth came to Boaz. And my question for us, New Life, is can we still be a church that will be undignified? Can we still be a church that would, in desperate faith, seek the Lord? Can we still be a, a church that is saying, no, I, you know, the externals look good. Actually, I'm doing all right. But I haven't lost my hunger for Jesus. I haven't lost my pursuit of him. I haven't lost my awareness of my need of him. Maybe for some of you, that, it's a lot closer right now. You feel it. You're like, man, I, I got this medical diagnosis. I've got a friend in the hospital. I've got, and you, I've got this business crisis. And you could list it. And you're like, I am at the end. I am stretched thin. And this morning, I want to ask us, can we get a little bit messy today? Can we seek the Lord with desperate faith? So we're going to come to the Lord's table. But before we receive, I want us to really... Take a step that, like Ruth, would be a step beyond comfort, feels kind of messy and risky. And for some of you that you're able, I recognize that concrete floors are not the most comfortable thing, but for some of you, if you're able, you could kneel, like kneeling at his feet. For others of you, if you're like, I, I just can't, you know, my, my knees, all this stuff, it's, it's okay. What if you stand and you stand with a, a friend or a spouse or a person and the two or three of you, some friends or whatever, just pray together. But we're going to make room right here on a Sunday morning to seek the Lord. Can we do that? But come on, let's do that this morning. I'm going to kneel right here. Maybe you're carrying a particular burden. Maybe there's a person you're praying for. Maybe it's a, a child that's a prodigal that you're saying, God, please, God, please, God. Yeah, and if you're standing, maybe it helps to just grab the shoulder of the person you're standing with and the two of you, just or two or three of you, whatever. But take a step beyond the comfort. Spirit for me to speak. 
over the room, if you would stand and you can lift up your hands to the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, without you, we are nothing. We think of certain things that we're facing, whether it's kids that we're praying for, family members or friends, whatever it is, the situation that is leading us to the end of our rope, God. We know that it's not by mind and not by power, but it's only by the Spirit of the Lord that things can change, God. So we're calling on you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. We want a move of God. God, we want a move of God right here at New Life Church. We want a move of God right here in our city, God. Come on. Come, come, come. With your own words now, just call on him. If you don't know what to say, you can just say what Pastor Brady's taught us. Come Holy Spirit. 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 We want to move of God. We want to move of God, yeah. elements by you and open up the bread and the cup right here in this moment of desperation. This is a sign, a reminder that when we come to Jesus with desperate faith, he meets us with more than enough. I know this cracker and this juice is not more than enough. But you know what they remind us of? His body and his blood. And that is more than enough. That is more than enough. And so on the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hang on to it for a second. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Whether you've been following Jesus for a lot of years or whether you came in here this morning not really knowing much about him, the death and resurrection of Jesus is how we know that God is gracious. It's how we know that God is our only hope when we're at the end of our rope. And so friends, you're welcome to receive today wherever you are in faith. This could be your first act of faith, that's great. It's a yes to the banquet that Jesus is offering you. And so let's receive the bread now together. And let's receive the cup now together.
Yeah. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit fall. Spirit fall. Just a little more now. Holy Spirit fall. Let it fall. Fall. team up here to the front and I if something was stirring in you this morning the Lord was calling you back to himself refreshing renewing your faith take a moment and mark that moment and let someone come and pray with you this morning mark that moment make it a memorial stone mark this moment others of you you're saying I'm so desperate that I just need, I don't even know how to pray. I need someone to stand with me, pray with me, like those men carrying their friend to Jesus. Yeah, that's what we'll do. That's what this altar ministry team is. They're the people who carry you to Jesus today. So don't hurry out of here. Giving you time to be able to linger in this response. But I'm going to send you out with a blessing for the rest of you. We're going to kind of wrap the time officially, but want to invite you to linger and let it keep flowing. Out in the lobby is Connect Central. There's also an opportunity to adopt a family during this holiday season. Maybe that's a way of us being a committed person in someone else's life. Us being the instance of gracious redemption arriving in someone else's life in a small way. Consider doing that in the lobby this morning. But New Life, let me send you out with a blessing. Church, the Lord Jesus Christ is a gracious redeemer. He hears your prayer before you even ask. He knows your need. So may you be a people that keeps leaning in, that keeps seeking him, that keeps coming to his feet. May you find in the days and weeks that follow that your own prayer and worship and devotion would wake up again to the Lord. That there would be freshness that flows out of you. And may the Lord send you out into the world to be a picture of that grace and that redemption and that loving kindness to the people around you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.